Please look with me at Romans chapter 6. This is, I think, our fourth look at these verses, and um, I think it's our last. But we're looking at these verses, uh, and again, considering what this idea, this notion of union with Christ is, all of the things that are related to it, and we want to do that again this morning. And let me encourage you then to join me at verse 1 of Romans chapter 6, reading through verse 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies, to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you again this morning for your spirit. Uh, These are uh, deep waters that you're calling us to walk through and swim around in. And and I confess to you that that I can very easily get lost in the weeds here. and, And I suspect we all can at some level. So come by your spirit and grant us your help as we seek again to think your thoughts after you and And then apply them, appropriate them into our lives. Help us by your spirit, Lord Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look again at these verses. And as we do this, um, what I'm going to ask that we do is is review a bit. uh, Look around and, and retrace our steps and sort of remember where we where we are, and then begin to move on as we uh, leave these particular verses, verses 1 through 14, and, and turn in the direction of verses 15 to 23. 
Um, and as we kind of make that turn, as we, as we shift um, from verses 1 to 14 into verses 15 to 23, as we sort of review all of this, there are three words that I want to call to your attention in this text, and they're words that uh, I want to encourage you to uh, keep in mind, because we'll look at a couple of them this week, and then we're going to look at the third of them uh, when we're together uh, in um, Romans the next time. Uh, and the three words are know, think, and present, or know, consider, and present. Know is in verse 3, consider is in verse 11, and present is in verse 13, those, those three words. So just keep those words in mind because they're critical words for thinking about this passage and understanding it. And here are some little phrases that I want to attach to those words, okay? Know, consider, or think, and then present. And these are the phrases. The mind has to be filled. The mind has to be filled. And the mind has to be used. And then the mind has to make choices. Okay? The mind has to be filled. The mind has to be used. And the mind has to make choices. Know and consider or reckon or think and then present, Paul admonishes us in verse 13. And these three words really form in connection with this idea of union with Christ, they form a kind of a foundation upon which the Christian life is lived. Okay, they form a basis upon which the Christian life is lived. I really, the more I reflect on this passage, the more persuaded I am that this passage is really critical for understanding the Christian life. It's absolutely critical. Let's just, again, remind ourselves where we are. Let's take a look around and, and kind of think our way back and get ourselves up into the present. Let me just remind you that these chapters, 5 through 8, and this is going back several weeks and even months, these chapters 5 through 8 focus on this matter of assurance. Assurance. Okay? When my daughter was, uh, my oldest daughter was in kindergarten, and this, unhappily, this little story, golly, I guess it tells you something about my parenting. When she was about six years, five years old, she was in kindergarten and she fell. It was in wintertime. We were living in Indiana and she was on the playground and she fell on the playground and she, she skinned her knees, but she ripped her tights, right? For those of you who lived, you remember tights? I have another great story that I could tell you about tights some other time. But she tore her tights and, and her knees bled and they stained her tights. Now, here's this little five-and-a-half-year-old little girl in the wintertime. She's just playing on the playground. She falls. She tears her tights. And, and as she told us later, the thing that concerned her the most was not the anguish and the pain that she felt. She was worried how we would respond. She was afraid we'd be upset with her because she tore and bloodied her tights. Now, what does a father want to say to a five-and-a-half-year-old children who's just wrecked her knees on some gravel or some concrete, torn her tights, bloodied her... What does a father want to say to his precious child when she feels that pain, both literal physical pain and the psychological anguish, the fear of how her parents might respond 
because she bloodied her tights. The parent wants to say to this child, it's okay. I love you. I love you. I'm not angry with you. When Katie was 11, I've told you this story, she had this surgical procedure done to open up a sinus in her head. She kept getting these infections and her black circles under her eyes, these sinus infections. And the doctor went up and he, he did the kind of the roto-rooter up through the nasal passage and opened this thing up so all this stuff could, could, could drain out and she wouldn't get these infections. And I was with her in recovery after the doctor completed the procedure. And she's coming out from under the anesthesia. She wakes up. And she looks up at me and she's frantic. She wants to pull this packing they've shoved up into her face. She wants to pull it all out and pull the tubes out and, and everything. And she says, Daddy, please don't be upset with me. And what does Daddy want to do? Daddy wants to crawl into the hospital bed with her and wrap her up in his arms and say, It's okay. I love you. I am here with you. Now think of this letter to the Romans from the perspective of a father in relationship to his children. This is the father speaking to his children, giving assurance to his children, saying to his children in the midst of all of the scrapes and the bumps and the bruises and the surgical stuff that's going on in our souls and the uncertainties and the fears and the doubts that inevitably arise in the midst of all of this, this is the Father saying, Oh no, it's okay. I love you. I love you. That's what chapters 5 to 8 are about. They are chapters on assurance. You walk from the beginning of the letter and Paul tells us about this problem of sin, this deep this deep and significant problem of sin, verses 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, and he unpacks it and, and enlarges it and exposes it and reveals it to us and wants to persuade us, as G.K. Chesterton said, I said this months ago, this, this editorial that appeared in the Times of London and the masthead of the article was, What is Wrong with the World? And G.K. Chesterton wrote a one sentence answer that made up, was made up of two words. What is wrong with the world? I am. What is wrong with the world? That's what Paul is getting at in these opening chapters, and he unpacks it and exposes it and tries to apply it and, and wrestle with it. And then in chapter 3 in verses 21 to 26, this powerful and densely compacted few verses, Paul there describes what God has done in Jesus Christ in the cross and through the cross to deal with this problem and to deal with it fully and thoroughly and finally so that it is no longer an issue. You read 321 to 26 and it is the cross against the backdrop of the problem of human sinfulness and our crazy and disordered and yes, even wicked hearts. It is the cross that is the answer to our problem. It is the work of Jesus that is the answer to my sin. Not a new to-do list. 
Not a new self-help therapy. I need an other help therapy. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is big enough. It is sufficient. It is all I need. And then in chapter 4, Paul goes on to show us that both David and Abraham understood that right standing before God was a gift given and received by faith. It's a gift offered and a gift received. And then in chapter 5, Paul starts this whole section, chapter 5 through chapter 8, with these remarkable words. With these remarkable words, having been justified by faith, having been declared innocent, having been declared positively righteous because of what Jesus did, received by faith. Do you hear this word? We have peace with God. We have peace. Pervasive, comprehensive peace. And then chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8, basically what Paul is doing is unpacking the significance of that statement in verse 1 of chapter 5. Unpacking for us how comprehensive and extensive is this work which Jesus has done for us so that he gets to the end of chapter 8 and he says, folks... There is nothing, not one thing in the whole of the creation that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus again. Nothing. And in verse 32 of chapter 8, he says, If he gave us his own son, won't he also with him, in him, through him, just as freely give us Crumbs from the table. No. All things. Everything. What is this? It is God putting his arms around us, embracing us, and saying, I love you. It's okay. I am here. And this salvation that is offered to you in Jesus Christ really is big enough for everything. This grace that is made manifest in Jesus Christ really is big enough for everything. Comprehensively, pervasively big enough for everything. It's big enough for your forgiveness. And this is what we get to in chapter 6. It's big enough for your forgiveness. It is big enough for your disobedience, you see. It is big enough for your violations of the law, but it is bigger than just big enough for your violations of the law. It is big enough to deliver you from bondage in sin and death. It's big enough even for that. And Paul is responding to this question that's raised in these first couple of verses of chapter 6. What then shall we say? If grace abounds, in fact, if grace superabounds where sin abounds, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound still more? Right? I said this a couple of weeks ago. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. It's a wonderful arrangement. Let's sin more 
so that God is glorified in forgiving more sin. Oh no, Paul says, if that's how you think about it, you have too small of you, too small of you of what Jesus has done for you because he didn't die just for your forgiveness. That's justification. That's reconciliation. He died also for your deliverance from bondage to sin and fear and death and all of the rest. And so Paul talks here about this mysterious idea, this wonderful idea This idea, which I say to you, is at the basis, it is the foundation for our understanding of the Christian life. He's talking here about this idea of union with Christ. And here's what he said. And this is all review for those of you who have been here for the last few weeks. Right? But you know what the first rule of of education is, don't you? The first rule of pedagogy Repeat, repeat, repeat. Maybe I'm just doing this for me, but my friends, I need for these things to be repeated. And so I will use my position as pastor in this church to repeat these things for myself and my benefit, and you can listen in while I'm repeating them to myself. Union with Christ, what has he said? You had a connection to union with Adam, but that old man has been crucified, put to death. That connection has been put to death. And in its place now, there is a new connection, a new union. You have a new head. And this head was a brutal tyrannical, life-killing, cruel master, sin and death. And this master, to whom you have been united, to whom you are connected by his grace, this new master is life-giving and freeing. The old connection is gone. You are united to him. You have been baptized into him, you remember. You have been baptized into his death. You've been baptized into his burial so that as you were baptized into his death, a death to sin, and then buried in the ground just as he, by the power of God, was made alive, so you, by virtue of union with him, you now have been raised to newness of life that you might walk not in death, but in life. If you're a Christian this morning, that is what has happened. You have to be careful with illustrations, and I understand that. Please, please work with me as I use this illustration. One of my all-time favorite movies, you've heard this before, is the 1975 version of Dracula with Frank Langella. And there is a wonderful depiction in that film of what it is that has happened to you spiritually, really, and truly. Mina is the daughter of Abram van Helsing. Abram van Helsing is the man of faith in this film. He understands evil. 
He understands how evil works. He is old, weak, and frail. That's kingdom imagery, folks. His daughter Mina has been bitten by the vampire. She now lives in a state of death, though she is not dead. She is living death. She is what Ephesians 2 describes when Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked. Mina is a living death, and when you see her deep underground in the caves and the caverns of death beneath the tombs of the dead, her eyes are hot red. She froths at the mouth. And she has one concern, and that is to destroy her father, who is her only hope. But her father understands that while dead, she must die in order to live again. And her father, in the light of day, takes a wooden stake and drives the wooden stake through her heart to kill her in her condition of death, that having died, she might live eternally. That's what happened to you if you're a Christian this morning. The old attachment is destroyed. There is a death that has occurred and a burial and a resurrection. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 can say, if anyone is in Christ, you see, baptized into Christ, relocated into Christ, that is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. Who are you this morning? If you are a Christian, this is what is true of you. You've been united to Christ. You have a new husband. You have a new master. You have a new Lord. And this master is a life-giving, loving, embracing Lord who wants to speak to you and say, yes, the death of my son is big enough even for your bondage to free you, to set you free from death. Union with Christ, it's the foundation. The old man, the old connection is dead. And there is a new connection that has been established where there is a new union. And the result is that there is something vital that is going on between Jesus and those who are united to him. And it's because of this idea, it is this idea that is at the foundation of the whole of the Christian life and which gives us reason for hope in the midst of the skinned knees and the disappointments and the heartaches and the difficulties that we encounter. And here's something I want to point out to you, and this hit me like a ton of bricks this last week. I heard this in a sermon preached. This illustration of the very thing that I'm talking about, and I have to credit the person from whom I heard this. I want to give credit where credit is due. This is like a footnote in a research paper. So Sinclair Ferguson, if you're out there listening, I'm crediting you for this. This union with Jesus doesn't just flow in one direction. It doesn't just flow from Jesus who possesses all of the blessings to me, 
the one desperately in need of all of the blessings of his saving, redeeming work. It doesn't just flow from him to me. In this union, there are things that flow from me to him. And here's the illustration, and I thank Sinclair Ferguson for it. You remember the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul? Three times in Acts. Acts chapter 9, when it occurs. Acts 22, when Paul first testifies. And then in Acts 26, when Paul last testifies. The same phrase recurs. When Paul experienced his conversion on the Damascus road, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest, try, and execute Christians. He was not neutral about Jesus. And on the road to Damascus, you you may know, again, you can read it in the book of Acts, you may know that in the midst of the daytime, Paul is struck blind, knocked from his horse, and he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church. Why are you persecuting my children? Why are you persecuting my brothers and sisters? No. Why are you persecuting me? Me. So thorough, so entire and complete is this union that exists between Jesus Christ and his children, his people, his church, that when your brothers and sisters are persecuted in Egypt, it is in fact Jesus who feels that pain, who knows that persecution who himself labors, even as the risen king of glory, who labors and who weeps when his beloved is persecuted. Do you feel that? Jesus, the king of glory, weeps, feels the anguish, knows the pain of his people as they suffer in the midst of difficulties and trials. This union with Christ moves in both directions. Think of it in terms of husband and wife. Think of it in terms of parent and child. Think of it in terms of a mother who has a baby in her womb. We have some friends, members of this congregation, whose granddaughter was induced yesterday afternoon at 32 weeks Because amniotic fluid is seeping and the risk of infection is growing. And so in the interest both of mother and child, you see, the doctors intervene and act to deal with the threat. You see? It's a picture. There is a real and vital union that exists 
between Jesus and his people such that we have the foretastes, the first fruits of the blessings of eternity and he in the midst of our anguish and pain knows that anguish and pain. And that's why a verse like Hebrews 4.15 is so precious. What do I need in the midst of my grief and anguish? What do I need as I'm contemplating and thinking about the extremities in which I find myself? I need Jesus, my great high priest, to gather me up in his arms. One who understands and who knows and who feels the realities of this. Who will speak peace to me and say, it's okay, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. Hebrews 4.15 we don't have a high priest who is unable, unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And how I love the old King James, which says that he is one who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. This union with Jesus, this connection to him, is not an abstract idea in somebody's head. It is more real than the chairs upon which you sit. It is vital. And it is the basis of the Christian life. And so it's in that context that I offer these three words to you. And encourage you, we'll think about them more in the weeks to come. But the first of them is no. Is no. Three times in this passage, verse 3 of chapter 6, and verse 16 of chapter 6, and then verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, Don't you know? Don't you know these things? Don't you know this? These people raise a question. It's a good question. Every question is a fair question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace by, might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know? Don't you know this? That we have been baptized into Christ Jesus and into his death and into his burial so that we might be raised to newness of life. Don't you know this? And then in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're no longer under law, but we're under grace? By no means. Don't you know? Don't you know this? And verse 7, do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Folks, there are things to be known. There are things to be known about the Christian life. There are things to be known about the truth of the gospel. Now look, let me be very, very clear. I understand fully, fully, that having the right ideas in your head does not save you. I understand that. There is a knowing that can be without knowledge. You get it? You know that, don't you? There is a knowing that can be without knowledge. Jesus encountered it in John chapter 5. 
He said to the Pharisees who were standing there, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In the scriptures. But no, Jesus says, the scriptures bear witness of me. Of me. So there can be a knowing it was clearly true of the Pharisees. There can be a knowing without knowledge. You need to know this about the Bible and the way the Bible uses the word to know. For the Hebrew person, to know involves an intensely personal and interpersonal connection. So that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when the text tells us that Adam had sexual relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Is that what the text says? No, it isn't. The text says, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived and gave birth to a son. You see, knowing is more than facts and information. Knowing is intensely and deeply personal. And when Paul says, don't you know these things, he's not asking us questions so that we can pass a test. He's inviting us to step into this glorious realm of personal knowledge where knowing is interpersonal and intimate and where facts are no longer facts, but they become the story of a person. They become the ideas and the character and the hopes and the dreams and the plans of a person. Don't you know these things? Apprehend these things. In Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. The stillness comes not just because I have in my head the idea that there is a big person out there in the universe managing things well. The stillness comes because that person is my covenant Lord and head, my Father, my King. And I know Him and I know what is true of him, his character, his plans, his intentions. I know what he is about. And because I know what he is about, I can be still, even in the midst of the noise and chaos of the world in which I live. John 17, 3, how did Jesus define eternal life? This is eternal life that they may know me and the one true God, the Father who has sent me. See, to, to know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. And knowing apart from the relationship knowing apart from the intimacy of fellowship, and I've seen it and you have too, leads to pride and arrogance rather than praise and gratitude. 
Paul's not seeking to stuff ideas into our heads. He's not asking us questions so that we can pass a test. He's inviting us to step into the mansion, the glories of communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ, the one to whom we are united. And let me just say this last thing and then we'll finish. I just want to acknowledge that heeding this invitation, heeding this invitation to step in to this vast expanse of kindnesses and blessings and grace all involved in union with Christ, stepping into that means stepping into the deep end of the pool. It just does. Again, I'll credit Sinclair Ferguson with this little story. He tells the story of being a, uh, a computer numbskull like me. But he had a son who was not a computer numbskull, who was an absolute expert and brilliant in computers. And he was having trouble with his computer. And he said, come and help me. And he said, it's in the manual, Dad. Can't you just give me a shortcut? It's in the manual, Dad. Can't you just give me a few quick tips? Can't you just kind of help me resolve? It's in the manual, Dad. My friends, my brothers and sisters, when you step into the gospel of Jesus Christ, as C.S. Spurgeon, Spurgeon put it, You step into an ocean that is safe enough for a child at the shore and deep enough to consume the largest of animals. And when you step into it, you've got to learn to swim. And there are no shortcuts. There are no little tricks. There are no easy ways around. We're invited to step into the glories of this union with Jesus Christ and we are encouraged to consider them, to reflect upon them, to meditate upon them. And that is not easy work, and I grant you that. But those who seek to scale the mountain, who labor to scale the mountain, begin to know the joys, the blessings, the wonders the incomprehensible beauties that are found as you scale the mountain. There are things you can see at 13,000 feet that you can't see at three feet. Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgay were the first to scale Everest and stand at its peak. We don't know to this day. They haven't told us. We don't know to this day who the first one was. Do you know how long they were on top of that mountain at that time, believed to be the highest point on earth, gazing at everything in the world beneath their feet? Eight minutes. Eight minutes. All that labor for such a short duration of joy. And they both said it was worth it. Folks, we really need to spend a year in Romans 6, 1 to 14. 
I'm not going to do that to you. But I want to plead with you that you do that. That you read it and you keep reading it and you wrestle with it and you call upon God to help you understand it. Because this idea of union with your risen king is the foundation for the whole of the Christian life. And it is worth wrestling with. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done. And thank you for what you are doing. And thank you that in the midst of these sufferings and struggles and trials and all of this stuff that we find ourselves in, in the midst of the uncertainties that are before us and around us, you remain the king of glory and you have us attached to yourself forever. And for that we praise you as we pray in your name. Amen.